Hi, and welcome to Lakeshore Update. I'm Dee Dodson. On this edition of the podcast, you'll hear the latest on the City of Geary's Police Reform Commission's recommendations. Brandon Smith reports adult Hoosiers will get a $125 automatic tax refund next year. And Chris Nolte has a conversation with Valparaiso University Associate Professor of Accounting Anton Lewis about the Great Resignation and, and its effect on small business as well as large firms in Northwest Indiana. All of that and more on this edition of Lakeshore Update. Body cameras may soon be mandated for Geary police officers. It was one of a number of recommendations from the city's Police Reform Commission that was presented to the public on Wednesday. Chief Brian Evans said the cost of data storage for body camera footage has been a barrier, but Mayor Jerome Prince was confident they could be put in place next year. We've identified resources already uh, from the city side in order to do that. Certainly by first quarter of next year or by the end of the first quarter, we should uh, have those in place. Many other recommendations, like a regular implicit bias training and prohibitions on excessive force, are scheduled to be implemented within the next six months. The police department will also work on duty to intervene language But Chief Evans felt his officers have already been making progress, even resulting in the termination of an officer earlier this year. Had it not been for the officers having the bravery to come forward, put their uh, feelings on paper, make sure they got to their supervisors and up to the chief's office, this case probably would have never gone forward the way it did. The Gary Police Reform Commission is also calling for guidelines to help officers deal with individuals experiencing mental health issues as well as their own mental health. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with Dee Dotson. Lake County Auditor John Patalis says anyone who bought a new home in the first half of this year should file their application for homestead and mortgage deductions before the end of this month so the owners receive lower property taxes in the coming year. The savings on the deductions on taxes could be as much as one half. Patalis told the Times new homeowners should call his office's tax deduction department at 219-755-3120 to find out if they need to file this month or if they have additional time to do so. The Lake County Auditor's Office will be closed on Christmas Eve, December 27th, and New Year's Eve, but open on the remaining weekdays. There is little or no waiting at his office's tax deduction department this week, but there will be a long waiting line at the end of the month. Homeowners who have changed the deed on their current homes or refinanced their mortgages this year should call the office to determine whether they need to renew their homestead or mortgage deductions. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with Dee Dotson. Northwest Indiana, led by the Northwest Indiana Forum, was awarded a $50 million ready grant earlier this week for projects in Lake, Porter, LaPorte, Stark, Pulaski, Jasper, 
and Newton counties. READY stands for Regional Economic Acceleration and Development Initiative. The forum's ready pitch centered on ready-to-go projects drawn from the multi-billion dollar Ignite the Region Economic Development Plan developed and implemented over the past four years. In a statement, Northwest Indiana Congressman Frank Mervan called it, quote, outstanding news for Northwest Indiana. He goes on to say, quote, I was proud to support the American Rescue Plan and am pleased to see this tangible result. Thank you to Governor Holcomb, the Northwest Indiana Forum, and all stakeholders for their thoughtful plans and dedicated efforts to grow our regional economy, end quote. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with Dee Dotson. Porter County officials in NDOT want to replace a bridge over the Little Calumet River on Mineral Springs Road, which is one of three main roads into the town of Porter. But the project is on hold until officials determine the historical significance of a neighboring house. There is a retaining wall near the bridge. Robert Thompson, the director of the Department of Development and Stormwater Management, says Bridge 150, as it's called, has the worst condition of any bridge in the county's inventory. It is one of three bridges to be replaced next year. A consultant working with the county on bridge replacement is keeping a wary eye on Bridge 150. A bridge in Pleasant Township on Smoke Road is also on the replacement list. It deteriorated so rapidly it had to be closed to traffic. Bids for that bridge replacement could be opened next month. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with Dee Dotson. Some Lake Central School Board members want to look at easing the school corporation's mask mandate, but a spike in COVID cases and the current orders from the state are preventing them from moving forward. Under the Indiana Department of Health's current rules, close contacts in the classroom don't have to quarantine if they don't have symptoms and the school requires masks. During last Monday's meeting, board member Nicole Kelly said she hoped the General Assembly would take action next month to ease those rules, but she's not comfortable removing the mandate until then. Today we had 25 positive cases just today. In our district here. Which, you know, if we were quarantining, could be, what, 250 students sent home to sit in front of a computer screen, which I just, I can't go with that. Superintendent Dr. Larry Verrocco felt that student quarantines could be shortened without affecting safety and also called on lawmakers to adjust the state's language. But parent Sherry True urged school officials to do more to challenge the orders from the governor and state health commissioner. We want our children to be successful. That's what education is about. They can be productive members of society when they are done with that. 
But what are we teaching them? To be afraid of their fellow classmates? To only do what they are told? To wear a mask and be compliant? That is hardly a skill set that they need to be successful in life. A group of five parents sued the Lake Central School Corporation last month, claiming that its COVID mitigation measures are illegal and unconstitutional. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with Dee Dotson. Indiana is one of six states that makes up more than half of the nation's COVID hospitalizations. Network Indiana's John Herrick reports on why Governor Holcomb still remains hopeful. To get an idea of what's coming, Holcomb tells Inside Indiana Business he always talks to governors in nearby states. And whenever I'm talking to or with my gubernatorial cohorts, we don't uh, cheer when the when the surge isn't over us because it's when it's going to come to us, not if it's not there already. And so uh, we'll get through this. He says mobile strike teams from the National Guard and the Department of Health will continue to be deployed to hospitals who need it. And he promises to have lots of health care workers to administer the vaccines. John Herrick, Network Indiana. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with D. Dotson. About 4.3 million Hoosier taxpayers will get $125 next year because of Indiana's automatic taxpayer refund. Indiana Public Broadcasting's Brandon Smith reports the process of sending that money out is changing from how it was previously done nearly a decade ago. Indiana's automatic taxpayer refund is triggered when the state ends the fiscal year with significantly large budget reserves, like it did this summer. The last and only time it was triggered, 2012, people got the money as a credit when they filed their taxes. So if you owed some money to the state, the refund amount was subtracted from that. But this time, the refund is being processed separately from Hoosiers' taxes. The refund, $125 per taxpayer, will go out as checks in the mail or via direct deposit into Hoosiers' bank accounts. The Holcomb administration says it will also pursue legislation in the upcoming session to expand eligibility for the refund, meaning about 900,000 people will get the refund who wouldn't have before. The governor's office says it hopes to have the refunds out to taxpayers by May 1st next year. For Indiana Public Broadcasting, I'm Brandon Smith at the State House. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with Dee Dotson. Indiana is deploying nearly a dozen hubs around the state that will help local prosecutors with the technology used in crimes. The units were made possible this year through legislation and $3 million a year in state funding. Courtney Curtis is with the Indiana Prosecuting Attorneys Council. She says as technology has become more complex, so has investigating crimes. The hubs will help clear evidence backlogs and investigate those crimes using, in parts, student investigators from local colleges and universities. You know, they say, like, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. We can't teach an old attorney new tricks sometimes, too. These students, um, it's just very intuitive for them. They understand technology in a way that some of the older generations don't. Curtis says when evaluating the effectiveness of these units, she hopes the state does not just look at charges filed. Jury trials may not necessarily be a benchmark either. I really think it's going to be what amount of evidence are we able to search and how quickly are we able to do so? 
Curtis notes that some of the work the hubs will do will help exonerate people, too. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with Dee Dotson. Here's Regionally Speaking host Chris Noti with a conversation with Valparaiso University Associate Professor of Accounting, Anton Lewis. We've had the opportunity to talk with Valparaiso University Accounting Professor Anton Lewis on a number of topics, and we have him in the studio today to continue on the conversation. And thanks for joining us on the program today, first off. Thank you, Chris. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, we've, we've had an opportunity to cover a number of topics before, and today... Uh, well, at least we'll start out with talking about some business topics that will be of, certainly of interest in Northwest Indiana and beyond uh, about what is uh, at least being called these days the Great Resignation. What kind of impact, uh, first I guess we meet probably for some people that don't understand what it's about, may need to explain, but in particular, what is the impact on Northwest Indiana businesses that you see? Well, the Great Resignation is having an impact not just on uh, Northwest Indiana, but uh, the United States nationally and globally, uh, and certainly in Britain where I'm from. So uh, some of the impacts are it's just recruitment, and that a number of small businesses here in Northwest Indiana, as they're coming out of a very difficult period from um, lockdown and kind of getting to a position of, of more of normality, they're finding that actually finding employees to get the businesses uh, up and running and expand is becoming more and more difficult. So to give you an idea, I've got a few stats here. Okay. Um, one stat was that the Bureau of Labor Statistics said there were 67 unemployed workers for every 100 job openings in October in the United States. And that gives you an idea of the difficulty that a number of employers are having trying to get workers to basically join their organizations to grow. And that's what we really mean by some of the negative effects of the Great Resignation. Um, it's difficult to find employees to work and also to retain employees. Employees are leaving in droves as well. Uh, part of this is driven, we believe, by the pandemic, uh, having people reevaluating their jobs that they're in, um, both at the corporate level and often at a more uh, local level for medium-sized to small organisations, and finding that not even you know reasonable remuneration what they're paid are enough to either keep them in their jobs or attract them to new ones. There is perhaps a, a real sea change in the relationship between employees and employers. Has this come about... I guess we've we we've probably figured primarily because of the pandemic, but has this gone on even to a lesser extent before COVID nineteen kind of uh, kind of took over the workplace? I think so. And uh, my own personal view on this is that some of this is generational. Some of the contract, perhaps that um, perhaps Gen Xers like myself or baby boomers had with employees, i.e. We, the employer, will give you job security going forward. We, the employee, will remain with you for the most of our working careers. I think that's beginning to break down. Mm -hmm. We've seen with millennials and particularly the Gen Zs, Generation Z, should I say, that are coming into the uh, employment market, that they have a completely different attitude about all of this, that they believe that their working life should entail many differing businesses. And that 
this approach has had to change the way that employers are planning to grow their businesses with um, employees that won't actually be around for several decades. So things were already changing. The pandemic basically turbocharged, I think, what was already happening. And this, again, is at the corporate level. It's for small to medium-sized businesses. It's a kind of sea change across business, be it in northwest Indiana or the Midwest or the United States as a whole, mm -hmm. at least from, from my viewing. Was it a situation, uh, when you mentioned about the fact that we have this generational change uh, between businesses, we'll say, that are run by baby boomers or created by baby boomers or they've carried on through the family. Now they have millennials in the workplace as well. And then now we have the Gen Xers, like you mentioned, that are coming into the mix because they're just not coming out of college and maybe even some coming out of trade school. And it's just so much of a change is too much to be able to handle. I don't think it's too much to be able to handle. But there's always a lag with change, isn't there? Mm -hmm. And the danger for small businesses is how quickly can you adapt to this to this change? That's the lag. If you can do it quickly, then there's a good chance that you will still, even in these times, be able to keep and retain for longer employees. If you don't, you're going to find it very difficult to not only attract workers into your business, to keep them also for a length of period. And so things that small businesses and medium-sized businesses may think about doing would be uh, be transparent in your dealings with the employees, you know, uh, give employees actionable targets each day, trust your employees, make them part of your business decision-making process, allow them to feel that they have an investment in your organization. Another might be to recruit like-minded people if you are customer-focused, then make sure that you have customer-focused workers and you both chime with the same aim. Again, it's back to feeling included in the job. And again, this goes to this sea change, I would argue, with boomers and Gen Xs, where we kind of turned up, did the job, went home, did our thing. Mm -hmm. Where I think millennials, and particularly Generation Z, want to be vested within the organization that they work in. Not only do they want to see that the organization that they work in grow, but they want to grow fully within that organization. If they don't see that a pathway like that exists, they will leave. And on the back of the two points of transparency, recruiting like-minded people, I would also argue that flexibility is now key. That our millennials and our, our, our Generation Zs are looking not only to grow within the firm, but that the firm is, in, is invested enough of the, is invested enough in them as a person to allow them to explore things that may really have a love and a passion for. So for example, you might well work in a bakery, but part of your passion might be the theater. Will that bakery give that person enough time to explore their theater passion? And then one might think, well, economically, I'm not getting enough bang for my book from a worker. Why would I do that? Well, the rub is, I, I think, that the worker sees that you are invested in them as a whole person and simply stays for longer. And that's retained skills for longer mm -hmm. as well. We're talking with Valparaiso University uh, accounting professor Anton Lewis about a number of topics today. And let's follow along your line of work, so to speak, as a, an accounting educator. What impact might be uh, with this? Well, we've talked about the great resignation on new accounting hires. Since we have this very, very, very tough, very tight labor market already. 
It's a really good question, Chris. And um, I guess the best way for me perhaps to answer that is for me to take you back to Friday when I had a former student of mine, Brandy, who came into my classroom, and it's an online class, one of my classes is an online class, and presented to my audit students about being a senior audit manager in BDO, uh, which is a mid-tier accounting firm. And one of the points that she made to my audit class was for them not to forget the value of their position right now. That because we are having real problems in recruiting new potential CPAs, that their bargaining power is really quite high. And this chimes in again with this new generation uh, Z coming up and the back end of the millennials who recognise that it is not just accounting employers who are dictating the terms. They have power to dictate terms themselves, not only in when they enter into accounting organisations, but also when they are negotiating remuneration, pay rises, increases in position. And this is actually an acute problem for accounting right now. Mm-hmm. Be they the big four, mid-tiers or smaller firms, we actually have a crisis right now in the accounting industry in the United States of recruitment. And we're actually seeing in accounting departments, in business schools across the land, really decreasing numbers. And part of this is not actually to do with the great resignation. Part of this is to do with some of the perceptions around accounting that have kind of blended with the great resignation to make accounting, some accounting students, unattractive as a profession, i.e. it's very complicated. The exams are some of the hardest you can do in the country. Why would I do that? Mm -hmm. And it, it seems to be boring. And unfortunately, part of my job as an accounting professor is to say, no, that's not correct. It's really interesting. You're not just going to be stuck with spreadsheets all along the while that you're working. There are many other things that you will do, not just producing financial information, but interpreting and more importantly, being able to grow. Where does uh, the issue of racial and gender microaggressions, which maybe you might have to explain what what that is all about, how does that fit into the workplace, and especially when you're talking about an opportunity to to be able to retain, in particular, people of color uh, into the workplace or women into the workplace? Well, again, Chris, it's another excellent question. And really, when we're talking about this notion of microaggressions, particularly racialized microaggressions, we're talking about slights that are stunning in impact, but harmful on a racialized basis. An example that I've used before uh, might well go to uh, my time being uh, an accounting trainee in Britain, working with a number of South Asian colleagues. And I, I witnessed on numerous occasions in Britain, for example, a number of white colleagues offer an Asian Muslim colleague of mine a bacon sandwich or bacon crisps, uh, partly as a joke, but that's not really a joke if mm-hmm. you are of the Islamic faith, if you are Muslim, because that's you can't do that. And it's stuff like that, these slight indiscretions that are stunning and, in, in a sense, don't quite rise to the level of direct racism, but stick with you. A way of thinking about microaggressions in this way would be, imagine, Chris, that you were flicking through the, the papers you have in front of you right now and you've got a paper cut, okay? It hurts, it stings, you, know, you remember it. You're not going to lose your arm, 
But at the same time, it's painful. Now imagine that as a person of colour working in a working environment, figuratively speaking, you had maybe 20 to 30 of those paper cuts every day, year in, year out, decade, decade, decade in and decade out. What kind of effect that would have on you? And the important piece to the point that you raised, particularly during this, this great resignation, is how do firms deal with such racialized microaggressions, if you like, in a sense to make sure that they not only retain those people of colour working within their organisations, but also encourage new workers in and also let those employees know that they are secure, that if they do experience such racialized microaggressions, that they are not gaslighted to say, it's your imagination, which is actually most often the case. Know that we recognize this and we're working on it. Just having institutional acceptance of the existence of racialized microaggressions in this fashion is, is really quite important to help deal with them. And, you know, I should highlight, there is a lot of talk about microaggressions without giving you a good real definition of, of what it is. And I really go back to this idea of paper cuts there. Right. And I should also note to you that the the person really who first came up with this notion of microaggressions was a Mr. Chester Pierce, who was the first African-American psychiatrist to join the faculty of Harvard University Medical School. And in a 1970s book chapter, he actually coined this idea, this notion of microaggressions and stated um, that these are incivilities that are in fact slight and dramatic, not debilitating by themselves, but collectively over time, extremely damaging. So that's actually where the history of microaggressions kind of comes from. Mm -hmm. I thought it's worth putting that one out there because people use the term without really pinning down where it came from. Are we thinking too about, and we should, probably should mention as well, about, about gender microaggressions? So it's all along the same lines, but it, is it the same? Is it different? Are they alike? And yes, Chris, you fit it right on the head. Where you have racial microaggressions, you also have gender microaggressions. And in the same sort of way, a gender microaggression for um, women um, employees might well be being in a particular meeting and being spoken over would be a classic gender microaggression. Uh, another gender microaggression may well be where a male colleague takes the idea that a woman colleague has uh, brought up and made it their own. And these just go on and on and on. And in the same notion that we are calling for recognition of racialized microaggressions, we're calling uh, again for the recognition of gender microaggressions. And they're the same kind of, the, the paper cut analogy there is the same. It's another stunning but slight impact that doesn't rise to the level of outright misogyny. But it's there. It makes you remember. It's a slight paper cut that wounds and it happens all the time. And then, of course, when we're talking about gender and we're talking about race, we have to talk about the intersection of gender and race. Mm -hmm. And at that point, there are particular microaggressive behavior around, for example, women of color in the workplace that have gendered and racialized slights used against them. Uh, a typical one may be some of the mammy trope that is that is out there about particularly African-American women um, being considered as being completely, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here, 
helpful uh, and not necessarily uh, as go-getting in, in certain uh, kind of uh, ways. Uh, off the back of that stereotype, there's one in, in the completely opposite way, which would be the stereotype of the sapphire, where um, black women executives, uh, employees, are seen as being emotionless, as being tough, as being shrill. And at that juncture of gender and race, the microaggressions exist. And at what point can organisations at various sizes support our stigmatised women, our stigmatised uh, people of colour, our stigmatised others across a whole range of inequities? How can we help and support them? And this is beyond just doing the right thing in many regards. It's also now vitally important in terms of firms retaining the labour that they have within their organisations and actually getting new labour to come in. It's something that really needs to be thought about. We're going to have to pick this up and expand on it next time. Come together again on this as well. Uh, and, and I know that you bring us some of these topics as well, too, in your podcasts, uh, in particular the Critical Racial Theory podcast, which, which you've had out there already and continue to put out there. So we'll follow through on some more of the topics as well, too. Thank you, Professor Lewis, for coming by to, to talk today. Chris, the pleasure is all mine, and thank you very, very much for having me here. Regionally Speaking with host Chris Nolte can be heard each Monday through Thursday at 11 a.m. on Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM and streaming online at lakeshorepublicradio.org, where you can also find podcasts of the show when you click on the program link. For the latest in local news and information, tune in Monday at 6 a.m. for Morning Edition with local host Chris Nolte. Lakeshore Update is supported by the listeners and members of Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM. Podcasts for Lakeshore Update are posted each Friday on our website, lakeshorepublicradio.org, as well as on NPR One. Make sure you search for WLPR and select us as your home station. Music for Lakeshore Update was written and produced by bensound.com. For Lakeshore Update, I'm D. Dotson.